Welcome to Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast. All speakers on this podcast have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for the second episode of the Leadership and Advocacy and Antimicrobial Stewardship podcast miniseries from the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists, or SIDP. My name is Erin McCreary, and I serve as an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. For those of you who missed episode one, you should switch episodes right now and come back to this one later. I'm just kidding, but there is some amazing content in there, so I highly encourage you to listen to that podcast at some point. For this episode, we are focusing our discussion on how to market your stewardship program with an emphasis on how to generate meaningful data to sustain and expand your program. So I know I actually just got out of a meeting today with my stewardship program. We've been doing this this really cool bacteremia initiative for the past six months, and we met today and we realized, you know, we're doing all this prospective work and we're probably not strategically collecting data points like we should be doing to to really show our organization on the back end the impact we're having. And so we completely kind of reevaluated how we're doing that today, um, which is okay. Those mistakes happen, but hopefully our truly phenomenal pharmacists that are with us today and our awesome panelists will teach us how to be a little more intentional about these things up front and tell us the things they've done with success in their programs. This podcast series was supported by a medical education grant from Melinda Therapeutics, so thank you to our sponsors and for the opportunity to discuss this with our audience today. So again, with no further ado, I have the honor of being joined by these Rockstar panelists. Um, guys, do you want to introduce yourselves for our fans at home? Hi, everyone. My name is Lisa Dumko. I'm the antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at Mercy Health St. Mary's in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hey everyone, this is Jamie Kiskin, um, the uh, pharmacy manager for infectious disease services and residency program director for the PGY1 program at Sarasota Memorial Hospital in sunny Sarasota, Florida. Well, it's not too cool here today in Durham. Um, this is Libby Dodds-Ashley, and I'm the operations director for the Duke Antimicrobial Stewardship Outreach Network and also an associate professor of medicine at Duke University here in North Carolina. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. My panelists are also incredibly humble, you guys. I could go on and on about them for hours. Um, mostly, you should follow them all on Twitter, number one. We should give all of our Twitters a shout out. But um, I'm really excited for this episode today, you guys, because I feel like we are going to address the elephant in the room. And I kind of shared a brief a brief one of my stories already. But it's kind of this fact that we have so many amazing pharmacists, physicians, nurses, microbiologists, infection preventionists, you name it. There are people out there every day in every capacity of healthcare doing day-to-day stewardship things. There are so many people who are working hard to improve the care of their patients. And it, it seems so overwhelming to just do what needs to be done every day to take the best care of patients that we can to do that and to simultaneously generate meaningful outcomes data to show what, like to show for our efforts, to show what we're doing. I know, I'm sure you guys have had those days where you leave work and you're like, I got nothing done today. And yet, if you really sat down and looked at it, and if you were able to quantify what you did that day, and you were able to collect data on every single minute of your day, you could show how successful, in fact, you were and how many patients you took care of and how much data you generated. But we just don't, it feels like you never have the time. And so, I mean, do you guys feel like that? Most days, I would think. Yeah, almost every day. <laughs> okay, so it's good to know we're not alone in this. And I think back in episode one, we talked a lot about goal setting for our stewardship programs and being strategic and thinking about the projects that we're going 
to implement in a given year or in a given time frame. Can you all give any advice to our young stewardship leaders about how to move those larger projects forward while also staying on top of their day-to-day efforts? Because I think this is the biggest issue, right? We, we have to do what needs done every day, and so it's hard to carve out that time to move those bigger boulders. And I know this is kind of a loaded question, so let's start with something that's on everyone's mind recently, and that is implementing vancomycin, AUC dosing. Jamie, you are absolutely a leader in this area. I know that you've empowered both your centralized and your decentralized pharmacists to do this. Can you kind of walk us through where you started with this initiative and then where you're going? Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Of course, you had to start with vancomycin, right? (laughs) People love vanco, Jamie. What can I say? So I would say for us, our AUC journey began at a meeting in Matt ID back in 2016. Jason Pogue, shout out to Jason uh, and his team, uh, implemented this up in Detroit. And they've been doing it already by the time he presented some of their preliminary data in 2016. And I walked out of that meeting going, we could do this. We can do this. And then I got back to my hospital and I said, maybe we can't do this. It's one of those, you, you kind of, you get that motivation, right? You leave the meeting, you have this great, awesome new idea, and then you get back and you're like, wow, this is bigger than I thought. Because when you think about it, and just to give you some background, we have about, you know, 70 to 80 pharmacists who are involved in our day-to-day vancomycin dosing, PK service, et cetera. How do I get them to understand the vision, right? How do you get them to say, wait a minute, I know we've been doing this trough thing for quite a while. And you all feel like you got this down pat. Now we're going to throw in some additional things, right? We're going to throw in another level. You need at least another level, right, to do AUC-based dosing. Oh, and now we're going to have these complex mathematical equations, log trap, lint trap, you name it, right? Is that actionable? Is that doable? So I think the first thing you need to do is ask yourself, is this the right decision to make? At the time, we said yes. We said this is the, this is the direction we're going. I think the, the pharmacy is going to go there. Let's figure this out now before we get behind. And so we said, all right, now how do we get our team involved? So the first step, obviously, is saying, let's break it down. What do they need to know? How do they do it? And so you have to have that vision first. And then you say, how do you make it actionable for your team? And so it's developing a process, whether you use an online calculator, using it one of the software programs for Bayesian modeling, or you make your own Excel calculator like we did and what, what Jason had, had kind of envisioned for us when he presented his talk. And so it's setting those goals. It's, in, again, empowering your team and trusting your team can handle these types of changes as long as you are thoughtful. You provide the education. You provide the rationale. You create a process that is going to cause as minimal disruption in other patient care activities. And then you have to implement it, measure it. You have to measure the impact. And so we actually just did that. And so after doing our extensive rollout uh, and measure the impact, we saw value in what we were doing. Now, going back to one of Aaron's questions, how do you get started? One of the things you can also do is give it to a resident because now you've set a time limit, right? Now, if you're going to have a resident working with you on this intervention to create a new service line or create a new change, that has a time, and you have to get it done within that year. So it almost forces you to, to move those steps in the right direction to get that accomplished. So I think that's a great tool in recognizing that, again, empowering your team, trusting that they can make this happen, and then building uh, the resources to make that happen. But I think, again, leveraging your residents and your students to help serve uh, that need also is helpful. 
I completely agree with Jamie. Um, whenever I can get a learner involved, it honestly is perfect timing for me. It, there's a time frame that has to be met, usually a year, um, and it ends up being a great project usually for them. Um, usually it's, you know, like a pre-post kind of implementation project. They can see really meaningful results. So it's kind of a win-win for them as a project and a win-win for me getting that data out. Um, I'd say especially, you know, working in a community hospital, it's hard for us to get meaningful electronic data, unfortunately. Um, so having residents and students available to deep dive and really pull out meaningful data is helpful um, and allows me to spend my time doing my day-to-day -day stewardship activities. Um, and these end up being really my most favorite things to present to, you know, our senior leadership. They're the most meaningful projects. Just this last year, one of our residents um, looked at the implementation of our MRSA nasal PCRs, um, and I just presented this to our senior leadership team last week, and they were really impressed with, you know, it's a pharmacist-driven protocol, and looking at, you know, our vancomycin use pre versus post, we were able to shorten the use of vancomycin for pneumonia by over a day, um, saving levels, you know, saving toxicities for our patients, and they were really impressed with that data, and it was all done by one of our residents. That's awesome. What if you, residents, I, I agree, I think it's really, I love working with residents as well, but what if you don't have a residency program? How do you generate data then? You know, Erin, I think you have to get a little creative. There are lots of other groups who may have learners in the facility, and something that's becoming more common with all the magnet recognition that's out there for nursing is most hospitals now have nursing career ladders. And in order to advance on that, they have to participate in quality improvement projects. So I found that when you just start asking the right questions, a whole group of eager people who are looking for a project idea are actually sitting out there just waiting to help. So they might be a rich resource for you as well to bring in our nursing colleagues. I think another great resource to think about are pharmacy students. Uh, there are a lot of times IPPE or APPE students rotating through your hospital at a given time, or there may even be a college of pharmacy down the road, right? There's probably P1s to P3s who would love to get involved in research opportunities, right? And so I think it's important to say what other resources are around you, including your IPPEs, your APPEs, or even your nearby college of pharmacy, because that could be some of that uh, assistance you need to generate that data to get that actionable. And again, they love to see that, right? See that from the beginning. How do you, you know, first ask the research question? How do you design the research tool and collect the data? And seeing it all the way through that process is a fantastic learning experience for students. And I would say don't forget about the students and residents from other disciplines as well. So I've worked on projects with, you know, MPH students, with nursing students, with nurse practitioner students, with medical residents even. Um, everyone is really looking for opportunities in research. It's also an exciting way when you're working with other disciplines to really kind of build that relationship, pharmacists versus these other um, disciplines. They're, you're learning from each other, and I think they really enjoy working with us as well as a team. Um, and seeing what they can learn that's not just, you know, clinical skills from us, the research skills as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. We actually, our ID fellows have a incorporated QI into their um, fellowship curriculum, and then we're also rolling out, you know, fellowship stewardship curriculums. And so I didn't even realize, like, I have eight really eager physicians that want to do these kinds of projects and want to learn about this kind of work, and that was a completely untapped resource um, that I'm recently discovering, and so that's been awesome. So that's a really good point, Lisa. I guess with that, though, like with good things like that and all these different people that you want to involve also comes then the time, right? And so you could have eight ongoing awesome resident projects with people from four different disciplines, 
but how do you have the time then to, you know, to dedicate to those learners what they need? They can't just do it on their own. You need to meet with them and support them. You need to review their data. You need to review their end-of-the-year projects. You need to review them along the way. So I guess I kind of have a two-part question. Like, one, do you guys have a good method for balancing all your ongoing learner projects and keeping track of them and dedicating the time those learners deserve? And then also, do you have a strategic way to make sure at the start of the project that the project's meaningful and that they're collecting meaningful data points? I would say, hopefully, one, you're not working on all of these projects as, like, the solo preceptor. Hopefully, you have a team on each of these, so you're each holding each other accountable. So that would be my first big one, is try not to tackle anything alone, if possible, um, or at least not everything alone, if possible. It is a big time commitment up front for any of these projects, and especially when you're doing multiple projects. Um, shout out to Susan Davis, because she's a great mentor for um, setting up research projects and really just... Um, discovering research in general for residents and for practitioners as well. Um, she has done a workshop at MAD-ID for several years and it's always excellent. Um, but there's a worksheet that we used when I was a resident at Henry Ford that really we had to write our project objectives first, our research question first, go over each of the different data points that we wanted to collect and you know say what kind of data it was, what statistical test would we use for it, go through the finer criteria with every question we wanted to answer. So was it feasible, interesting, novel? ethical, relevant, that kind of thing. And so I have all of my learners do that now with me. Um, there's a worksheet that I give them that they have to fill out. Um, and it really kind of just drives home these points and helps us be organized up front to tackle each of these projects and kind of help us work out the kinks before we even start doing the deep diving of, you know, working on the IRB or data collection. I think those are great points. And I think it's a great model for us to all all emulate and making sure that our, our, our students and our residents, I would throw them as well, really understand the full aspect. And I think that's a great model to use to help them understand that. Uh, I think for me as well, it's important that the students see the end goal. And so it's important for you as that preceptor to lay that out. Here's the why, right? And here's what I'm hoping to get out of this. I think the students can provide a lot of times unique perspective, especially as they start diving into the data and saying, wow, I'm seeing these trends or I'm seeing these other observations that maybe you as the research-minded person hadn't even considered, but they're the ones diving into the data. They're the ones actually looking at that data and saying, wow, I'm seeing other things. And so be open to your students bringing these questions or concerns to you. I think part of that also is as far as the time piece and that time question I think you brought up, Aaron, is you have to commit early to a little bit more time to set them up for success. And that may be sitting down with them. And I, I always make a point to sit down for the first few cases and literally together we go through the EMR together and say, okay, here's where you find this data. Here's where you find that data. And making sure they understand the data collection sheet, whether it's a red cap or whether it's an Excel file, they know where all the data points need to be. They need to know exactly where to find the chart. So they're more efficient, right? They're able to get more done in a timely manner. They're going to have less questions on patient 20 that you have to then have them go back and fix the previous 19. If you go through those first few cases together as a group and make sure there's clarity and, and, and consistency in how that collection is happening. And that will save you time down the road. Yeah, you guys both bring up such great tips for working with learners, but I kind of just have to put this out there that one thing I've learned is that not all projects are really suitable for learners to help with. And not all learners are suitable for helping with big projects. It's just not where their interest lies or where their talents are. So you also have to think about other creative ways. And most facilities do sit on huge electronic medical records, 
but I have never run into anybody who has all the access in the data that they want um, right when they wanted it. So it's okay to sit and dream about grooming that giant data set or uh, think about ways that you might use students to capture data. But when those things just aren't possible, you have to look around you. There's always data somewhere. You know, other groups have existing data sets. Other groups, for example, you know, related to infection prevention might be sitting on similar data. It might not be exactly your ideal, but it'll still help you get to the data that you want. And I think that that's something that's often overlooked is we let perfection get in the way of progress. And so we don't always have all the resources we want to get it done, but if we're creative and look around us, we might find some things out there. One of think, the, um, oh, sorry, Lisa, I didn't mean oh, to you're interrupt, good. but Libby, you reminded me one of them, when I first started residency, one of the ID fellows who I looked up to so much, and to this day, like he practices across the country and we still text each other about patients and whatnot, but he hung up in his cubicle, done is better than perfect. And it like was a lot that. of all of residency. We were like, it's a great one. I might, I might have to steal that one. Yeah. Done is better than perfect. Anyway, sorry, Lisa, what were you going to say? Oh, no, that's okay. I mean, what Libby brings up are great points. I would say some hospitals still, you know, there's going to be data, and yes, you just need to figure out how to find it. I would say that was really frustrating for me when I first started. We didn't have a, like clinical decision support software, a good way to get antibiotic use data out of our computer system. We have Cerner. Um, so I really wanted to look at DDDs and DOTs, but there wasn't really an easy way to look at either of those. Um, so luckily, there was actually a pharmacy technician here that was already collecting antibiotic use data, um, and I just had to do a little bit of manual manipulation to get the DDD data out until we actually put a proposal in, which finally got accepted a few years ago for the clinical decision support software that could do DOT. So hopefully, yes, you can find someone somewhere that is able to help you get the data that you need. Um, and if it's not there, maybe you can um, beg for some clinical decision support software. Similar to Lisa, we had that same challenge. It's like you're echoing my same uh, beginning days here at SMH where we did not have access to a clinical decision support software. So we had to do all the manual uh, you know, again, buying, buying usage from uh, purchase data. And it was very tedious, very painful. But one thing I did try to do early on is I got, I reached out to IT and I said, look, this is what my, my vision would look like, right? This is my dream. I want DOT. Can you guys make that happen? At the time, I got, the answer was no. I said, well, can I please add it to the wish list? And so I did. I added it to the wish list. And eventually, my request kind of came down and I was able to eventually get uh, the IT team to really look at it and say, you know what, well, maybe we can do this. And so they finally were able to configure a report to pull DOT from our EMR and was able to leverage our electronic medical record to make that happen. But then on a monthly basis, I would get a, a file that would have my DOT and then I could throw that in and be able to track my data. But it took time, but I think it also takes in persistence and engaging them early on. And it, you don't expect to always get a yes, but say, all right, can I put them on the wish list? And keep following up and saying, hey, any chance we could look at this again? And eventually you're, you're you know, going to be that person that finally is able to answer that for you. And then finally, now fast forward to today, and we have now, uh, you know, clinical decision support software. And because of that, we now will be able to do even more robust on-demand DOTs. Did you guys know I trained on paper charts when I was an Appy student? <laughs> like Karen, like, I'm old enough everyone had paper charts when I trained. <laughs> was my PGY one. But 
the point is like this is still like real right like i literally trained on paper charts and then i went to pgy1 and i was like what's a what's epic like <laughs> what's a computer and um like when we did stewardship on my appy rotation i used to go up to the floor pull the paper binder and cross off the antibiotic and that was like discontinued and it was so satisfying but when i when i started residency and then my job i mean learning data was really tough and i think even things like um you guys are I, jamie your point of like just meet with those IT people early and often and here you have a vision, but let them speak to you about what they're good at and teach you what, what's possible. Cause sometimes you might be asking for one thing and, and an even better thing is possible. And that might even be easier for them to build. It's just, you really have to kind of communicate with each other. We just did this here. We wanted to roll out a, a QI initiative for a stewardship project and we filed it, went through all the work to file the QI and ask for the data and found out after we filed it that, two other hospitals in our health system had filed very similar projects and the QI board was like, y'all should talk to each other. And we were like, Oh, okay. Sorry about that. So we reached out to those stewardship pharmacists. I think there is like, they can really help you as well. I would say that's a great thing to happen within a big system, Aaron. But one thing I will caution since we, I'm in a large system and we do a lot of things collaboratively together. We did this once early here and then they were like, well, now we want, you guys to do everything together as a system. So there's a few things that work really well for all hospitals. Like we should all be doing them from a stewardship perspective, but stewardship we know is not one size fits all. So we do have to be very, very cautious in big health systems to try not to do so much things on a system-based level since we know, you know, not all of our antibiograms are going to be similar. Yeah, I agree. Certainly stewardship is not one size fits all. And in my current role where it's a large network of hospitals that we try to work together with, we know that all too well. But I have to say that one thing I see that's often a frustration to frontline stewards is they just try to fight it entirely and say, well, this isn't going to work for my facility, so I can't be part of the system-wide initiative and I just want to quit. But the reality is, is that the system drives some resources that go towards building things you want, like order sets. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you have a creative approach to it, you can actually leverage those system-wide initiatives to get to a least common denominator. So maybe develop one all-encompassing guideline, but then allow facilities to pick and choose which parts of that they want to have displayed for their own hospital. A thing that's necessary in that is talk to the people who are actually going to be building in the electronic health record. Instead of going to them and telling them what you want, go first and ask a lot of questions. You know, am, are we able to customize this? Could different sites use this order set but suppress parts of it or drugs that are listed or maybe laboratory aspects of it. Find those things out before you get your mindset around how you're going to build it and you'll have a lot more success. So, you know, things that might be important if you're in a health system is ask the EHR team, how much variability are we allowed to have between sites? And maybe their pat answer for that is none. We want all sites to be uniform. But there's some tricks to getting to the real answer. So ask them, well, what if one site uses Advantage for their cefazolin and the other uses Frozens? How do you build out those differences in the electronic health record? And when you hear how they do that, that might give you ideas of how to creatively have differences between facilities while you're still all somewhat on the same page. The EHR people really want you all to get to that least common denominator so that updates and changes are easy and don't have to be done for each facility. And if you can come up with a way that lets you start from the same template and just make a few little tweaks here and there, they're much happier than having to build 
complete order sets for each facility is what I've learned. So you have to be creative and come to them. And I don't think many people do that. So once you're proven as the stewardship team always comes to us before they build a big system-wide order set or they decide that they can't use the system-wide order sets because of unique patient populations in different hospitals, they'll be more willing to work with you. The other thing you have to really think about when you build the order sets is not just how you want prescribers to use them, but what data are you going to want out in the end? I think that's where, you know, when we talk about outcomes data, we aren't always wise. So are we going to want to be able to pull these very specifically? And are there things that go into the design of the order set that might change knowing the data we want to pull out? I think Olivia brings up several great points about, you know, when you're generating order sets and creating order sets, thinking about the end users and the needs of, the, of who your audience is, but also about the getting the data. And I think it's important for us stewards out there to not always uh, have these high expectations uh, when you do get the data, by the way. Just to give you a great example, a few years ago, we implemented a new CAP order set here at our hospital, and we did a you know, targeted education. We went out there and, and hit our key groups. We targeted our pulmonologists. ED physicians, our hospitalists say, look, hey, this is best practice. Look at this beautiful, shiny new order set. Has all of our right combinations, all these text boxes to lead you down the right path. And hey, let's talk about duration. You think, great, this is all going to be amazing, uh, awesome thing. Yay, stewardship, clap. Everyone starts clapping hands. Well, then we started looking at the data. So we actually did a recent MUE. You know, we waited a little while. Let's see what happens over time. And we did an MUE. And what did we find out? That order set was used less than 20% of the time. And in many scenarios, they may have not provided optimal therapy per guidelines. And in some cases, they were getting much longer durations of therapy. And we went back and said, you know, what happened? Well, obviously, what we chose as a tool wasn't meeting our audience's need. They didn't see the value and weren't using it on a daily basis. So now our, we're trying to go back and say, all right, let's re, redesign this. Let's go back to the end user again and say, what will you use? Because you didn't use this more than 80% of the time, and we're seeing areas for improvement and better quality prescribing in this patient population. So again, make sure you're, you're evaluating your success, but also accept your failures, learn from those, and, and figure out what the next steps are once you get that data out. Jamie, that's such a good point. We rolled out a similar thing in our emergency department. It was like a comprehensive antibiotic order set. So it went through all common infections, you know, sexually transmitted infections, everything you would see in the ER, pretty much sepsis, the whole nine, and so excited about it, rolled it out, no one used it. No one used this order set. And so we, and we, the exciting thing about it was we had built in indications for the antibiotic orders. And so we were very excited about the data we could generate on the back end with antibiotic indications. And it just wasn't used. And then when we went back to those residents and those attendings and said, you know, what, what, what can we do to help you with this? I mean, we got so much feedback on the way we thought indications were laid out within the order entry to be optimal for them to easily click them. As it turns out, that's not what they wanted at all. And so brought it to kind of this super user group of residents and they completely rearranged the buttons to not something pharmacists or, or anyone on the stewardship team per se would have thought of, but what made the most sense to someone working quickly in the emergency room and that fit with their workflow. So we completely redid how the order set looked and then that increased the use and our indication data yield on the back end. Yeah, Aaron. Indications are a great example. You know, back in those dark ages when I did my residency, pen and paper indications were all that we had. But we went ahead and implemented it and required them for all antibiotic orders. And honestly, prescribers weren't too enthusiastic about it, although they would complete them. But then we went and did medicine grand rounds and really explained to them how we were using them, what the data was showing us. And it was very interesting to see the providers respond to that feedback. 
and seeing that the data they were putting in was getting used and that we were modifying order sets and saying, you know, we realized because this drug was being prescribed a lot for whatever indication, maybe we were wrong to not have it on the initial guidelines, or maybe we needed to make it more available in the ED to be given first line and quickly. And they really responded positively to that and were more participatory in our indications. You know, it, we still have them going. We're working on that in all the Dason hospitals now, so we found them very valuable. I find that anytime you go back and give the data back, whether it's indications data or prescriber-specific use data, we always find a newly engaged prescriber. We've done it hundreds of times now, and every single time we pick up a new person. And once you get a new prescriber engaged in stewardship, that is a ton of stewardship work done for you. You know, they're a steward for life, we like to say, because once <laughs> they get the data, they want to get more data. And it is a huge way to expand your program without actually garnering extra resources. So if you can go out there and make everyone stewardship champions, that's just a huge win for your program. And the best way we found to do that is with data. I feel like when you said that, I envisioned Lisa making people like little capes for her. I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like Lisa would love that. (laughs) She makes the cutest stuff. Okay, so excellent point on, on presenting data back. I think that really does speak to clinicians. What do you guys do when you're presenting to non-clinicians? What data do you bring outside of just antimicrobial cost? I think that's a great question, Erin, and it's really important to just know who your audience is. So every six months, we have to present as our stewardship um, committee to our quality improvement committee of the hospital, and it's a pretty decent mix of clinicians versus non-clinicians, so just making sure that we're presenting data that's important to both groups. Um, so this, actually just this past month, we presented both an inpatient and an outpatient initiative um, regarding community-acquired pneumonia. Um, we obviously discussed inappropriate versus appropriate prescribing in both of those instances. Um, again, we presented on the MRSA nasal PCRs, um, but just tying this to like magnitude of prescribing and the effects on patients and on ourselves. So trying to just tie it into our own health. Um, and so that just makes more of an impact for those, um, that group of non-clinicians um, and just tying it into our hospital mission of stewardship as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think one thing when you, I think dollars end up always coming up in the conversation, but I, to me, I, I really would like to emphasize to all programs to try and minimize or avoid that being the most common message because, as with many things, if you uh, have an institution that has on, you know, no stewardship at all, obviously there's going to be a lot of opportunity for decreasing overall antibiotic usage and costs, but over time there's a diminishing return, and that can't be your selling point of your program for the long term. I think most programs should really focus on the quality outcomes, right? Where our patients are going to have better care. Our patients may go home sooner. Our patients are going to have less risk for healthcare associated infections. We're going to have more opportunities to treat these resistant infections down the road with these antibiotics we're saving. Those are the messages I think that we should be selling more of. Now, keeping in mind, um, many, many patients, uh, many of these C-suite folks have heard things like uh, C. diff and pneumonia because these are, are, are metrics that are being measured by other departments, right? You have uh, Joint Commission, you have Medicare, who are also looking at these metrics. And so if you can tie into some of your initiatives that they're aware of and can, and can, can understand, and I think it's, it's very impactful to them to hear those stories of how you're going to improve those patients' outcomes using terms and situations that they're already familiar with. Yeah, Jamie, I completely agree. The best advice I have is to know your audience. 
So there are lots of examples where someone within the C-suite has a particular background that can be useful. So maybe it's a CMO. Granted, that's a clinician, not really the focus of the question here, but the CMO who may be a urologist. I promise you every example that you bring in should relate to urology. You want to make it personal in some way. And maybe you don't have a great example of that, you know, but sometimes stories come out. So we once had a leader at a facility that I worked at who had a family member who died of C. diff. And so talking about how our interventions were going to change the trajectory of C. diff infection at the facility really spoke to that leader. And if you can't find those examples, there is at least a financial impact that allows you to talk without specifically talking about drug dollars. And most facilities know which diagnosis groups are leading to the biggest losses at the facility. And if you can find those data and relate your examples to the largest losses and how you're going to implement interventions that are going to improve patient outcomes like length of stay there, that's like speaking in dollars without actually having to put drug savings on the table and can be very impactful to the audience that you have in front of you. You just have to really listen to them when they talk and find out from others what really seems to drive success for new proposals and initiatives you want to implement. Yeah, I think for me, uh, Joint Commission helped us out tremendously. I think, again, knowing the audience, and Joint Commission was a huge, uh, you know, opportunity for us to get more stewardship transparency in our organization. Uh, all of a sudden, our C-suite is hearing the word stewardship, and like, what is this? Uh, all of a sudden, they want to know, do we have one of these programs in place? And we're able to tell a story, yeah, we do. We have a prior, we have a program in place. Here are things we're already doing to tackle stewardship, and, and look at what we've already done to meet those requirements that Joint Commission has laid out. So I think for no, for us, I know some programs have different experience, but for us, Joint Commission was able to give us more transparency and more awareness. We even were able to go all the way up to our board and be able to present about our program to our board uh, because they, they knew this was now a new quality initiative that was uh, something Joint Commission was looking at and expecting. And now we're able to tell our story all the way up to the top, and it's become now a, a quality priority for our institution. And it's a great support we get now and more resources uh, to support that program. Jamie, I feel like you and I have such similar stories. I really didn't feel like our program was on the radar of our C-suite until the Joint Commission came, and then there were all these emails and calls and what do you need from us? And it was actually the push that helped us to get our clinical decision support software um, was that this was going to be a Joint Commission requirement. Um, and when we presented to our C-suite last month, they actually asked us if we knew that there were going to be outpatient uh, requirements for Joint Commission. And then we brought them all this data for what we're already doing for outpatient, and they were really impressed um, with just how on the ball we were with everything. So, yeah, it has helped us immensely um, just with being really upfront and center and getting the resources that we need. Yeah, I think the Joint Commission definitely helped us here, too. I, I think it's it's just put stewardship kind of on the map, so to speak, and, and generated a lot of discussion. And so um, that's really moved us forward as well. I think you guys have provided such valuable information today about how to generate meaningful data for your programs, thinking strategically about these initiatives, and then marketing your program once you have that data um, to show your value. And so to our audience at home or at work or wherever you may be today, we hope you're feeling inspired. Um, we hope at the very least you know you're not alone when you're out there fighting the good fight for stewardship. So it's pretty amazing to think what stewardship teams across the country are doing to care for their patients each and every day. Um, so to our audience, thank you so much for listening. And on behalf of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists, we hope you join us for Episode 3 to discuss how we can all evolve as a stewardship team member and a leader and share some of our lessons learned and, my favorite part, some of our proudest moments. 
And I'm joined today by Lisa Dumko, the antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist leader at Mercy Health St. Mary's in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Jamie Kisgan, the pharmacy manager for Infectious Diseases Services and PGY1 Residency Program Director at Sarasota Memorial Healthcare. And Libby Dodds-Ashley from Durham, North Carolina, serving as the operations director for the Duke Antimicrobial Stewardship Outreach Network. I'm Erin McCreary, an infectious diseases pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh. Thank you so much for listening, guys, and I hope everyone has a great day. You've been listening to Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast. For more information, please visit sidp.org slash podcasts.